Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I'm speaking with Michigan State Representative Padma Kupa, who serves the 41st House District, which covers the Troy and Lawson area. Padma is an engineer by training who also served on HAF's Board of Directors for a number of years before turning to politics. We talk about how she decided to focus on elected office, the connections between her Hindu faith and public service, the attacks she's faced based on her Hindu identity, and some of the more contentious public policy issues we faced in the past month. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Padma. To start off, for people that don't know, how did you get into politics? So I'm an engineer. I'm an immigrant. Um, I came to this country with two suitcases, $250, and a desire to work in the engineering profession um, as a foreign student um, in design. And I really never thought about politics as being something I wanted to ever get involved in. My dad always, he's an English professor, always quoted, uh, I think it's Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said that politics is the last resort of a scoundrel. Um, And so I never thought that that was important. But I had lived in India as a child who grew up in America. My parents had been here when I was growing up. And when we went back, I always felt like I was the Indian in America and the American in India. And so I always saw myself as the other. And so I was much more sensitive and compassionate about people feeling left out or not being included. And so I just helped others. So they felt included, especially when my children got to school age, I started volunteering in the public schools with the PTA, with other um, civic organizations and just helping others. And through that, I got involved with city boards. Um, 9-11 happened. I became a member of the city of Troy's Ethnic Issues Advisory Board. From there, I went on to serve on other city boards and commissions and nonprofits, finally ending up on planning commission. Um, pretty powerful position, was involved with developing our master plan. So in a sense, I was involved in politics without even knowing it. Um, I actually went to Lansing to advocate against cuts to funding for schools and cities. Um, went to D.C. with the Hindu American Foundation to advocate that money that is given to international organizations or to to other countries is not used to terrorize their neighbors, Um, you know, to make sure that any money that's given is for humanitarian purposes and to ensure that our tax dollars are used wisely. So, as I said, um, I never saw myself as being particularly interested in running for public office until I heard the confirmation hearings of Betsy DeVos as our secretary of education in 2017. And I would call my parents and I would actually call the senators in Alaska and Maine and ask them not to confirm her and not to vote for her. And my dad said, politics is local. All politics is local and made me realize that the best way to counter what was happening at the federal level was to focus on state politics. And instead of being the constituent that went to yell at my state representative to become the state representative. 
And so through the course of 2017, I figured out what I needed to do. I situated myself so that I could quit my job in 2018 and run for office. As a Hindu American, what connection do you see between this public service and Hindu traditions, your faith, however you want to, however you want to frame that? Sure. That's a, that's a really, um, question that I really want to answer because I think that I believe very strongly that faith and politics should be separate, the separate separation of church and state that I value so much as an American. But at the same time, each of us brings our faith or our moral perspective or what we value to the table, whether we are voting, whether we are an elected official or somewhere in between. Um, and so I think for me, Dharma, the Kama Moksha, the fourfold pursuit starts with Dharma. It's not just about earning money. It's about serving others and helping others. That's what Dharma is. And so for me, I always thought about, you know, when I had an opportunity to have a promotion at work or to do the extra mile at work, it wasn't as important to me as being able to come home and go to the next civic board meeting or the next PTA meeting because I was making a difference. I was entering spaces where there was not a person like me at the table, whether it was being because I was Hindu, because I was a woman, because I was uh, brown, um, being in the places where my voice added a diversity of perspective, um, I thought was very important because it would then make my children's life and all people's lives better by having that diversity of perspectives. And so, um, yeah, I gave up a lot career-wise, I think, because I didn't just look to the next step on the corporate ladder. I worked for Chrysler, I worked for Ally Financial, um, but I thought it was important to pursue dharma. And then the second thing is that really being in politics, you have to say what you're doing and be public and transparent. But to some extent, there's also sort of a self-aggrandizing aspect. You have to show that you're doing it so that people know. And so there's sort of an internal conflict because seva is supposed to be done without touting it. The concept of seva is that it's selfless. So why should you go around telling everyone that you did something to help somebody? So it's kind of a conflict of being Hindu and sort of being playing yourself, your work down and not really trumpeting it, but continuing to do the seva. And so, um, so yeah, so I think those are really important aspects of being Hindu that lend themselves to my being in the political public service space. So how then have you, reconcile this desire or inclination, shall we say, of not taking credit for the work, playing it down. And as you say, the imperative that all of us in advocacy or in any aspect of our lives, really in, in the age of social media, have to trumpet our work, to play it up, to try to get it out there into this massive competition of ideas that we have right now. I think the thing that I've really seen that helps me center myself is telling other people's stories. 
Um, I think it's really important that we center the advocacy on those who are vulnerable. Um, I just got an endorsement from a very important national organization that helps pro-choice Democratic women known as EMILY's List. EMILY stands for Early Money is Like Yeast, not after name of a person. Early money is like yeast helps the dough rise. And so um, Emily's List said in their uh, endorsement of me that I've been a great advocate for those who are vulnerable. And I think that's really what it is, is to advocate and to speak out on behalf of those who need something. For me, it started out with children, no matter who their parent is, need an education, no matter where they live. If they are going to be successful in life, we need to make sure that they have access to opportunity. Um, They don't have a right to vote. We have to stand up for them. And then if you want to get into the nitty gritty, the first bill I took up is from a constituent when she was 19, she has Down syndrome. She's a victim of an online sexual predator. Making sure that we close the loophole in the law that enabled her perpetrator um, of harm to be fined and uh, held accountable for a criminal penalty. We have laws on the books for those who perpetrate harm online with children, but for these young people who are childlike or any age people who are childlike, somebody with Down syndrome, somebody who on the autism spectrum, high performing, they may be able to be online, uh, members of my family like that. I think everyone knows someone. And then making sure that they are also not victims and that we close that loophole. So it it's a wide range of things that we can advocate on, but to help others is always, I mean, that's the essence of SEBA, help others. And so being able to voice that and say that we are helping someone, uh, especially those who are voiceless or who don't have a loud voice is important to me. In the past couple of weeks, we've had some fundamentally shaking decisions, shaking of the fabric of the United States and the legal system by the Supreme Court. Specifically, I'm talking about Roe v. Wade. HAF came out with a statement opposing that ruling on the grounds that it's not the business of government to get involved in these sorts of medical decisions. And we got some pushback from the community saying scripture says abortion is a great sin, et cetera, et cetera. How do you reconcile those two positions? So I think that's where the third, besides Dharma and Seva, another key foundational concept of Hinduism for me is pluralism. In fact, I would say Hinduism is pluralism. And I think it's really, really important to recognize that there are a wide range of understanding of when life begins. I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a biologist. But I can tell you that the range of interpretations should allow for medical science to be the leading factor in the decision. The decision has to be between the doctor and the patient. 
the person who is making that decision. It's a weighty decision. Um, I recently joined the board of an organization that has its roots in helping those who need reproductive health care, the care they needed at a time when abortion access was illegal. It was called the Clergy Consultation Service. That then went on to become another organization with another acronym. Today, it is known as the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. On their website, they have a variety of faith perspectives. And there is a Hindu faith perspective provided on there as well. And it's very much in line with the way I understand. Um, I'm vegetarian. I don't want to kill anything to eat it. So I understand the idea that some people may find the concept of abortion unacceptable. But there are others who understand the life of the mother or the life of the child. We just had an incident in Ohio where a 10-year-old was six weeks and three days pregnant from being assaulted by her own family member. And she could not get an abortion because of the six-week abortion ban in Ohio. I cannot agree that that child got, has gone through this assault and rape and should not be given access to the proper care. As long as these kinds of incidents occur, ensuring that full reproductive health care is accessible is critical. So I think pluralism is the answer to this, this uh, Roe v. Wade issue is, sure, you may not agree with abortion, but you're not the one making the decision. This is somebody else's decision. Make the choice you need to make. Let that person or that child and their guardian and their doctor decide what is right for them. I know you've done a great deal of interfaith work, you know, in the community and interfaith work inherently involves, at least at times, engaging in dialogue with people that on some level of your faith, you don't agree with. You have differences of opinion. You know, it's an inherent part of the work, but you work together on some common goal, whatever that goal is in the particular interfaith group. And I think sometimes that's just simply understanding one another. Sometimes the goal of interfaith work is just to get to know your neighbors better. But in politics and advocacy in the past several years, it seems that that sort of approach of trying to understand one another or working together on issues of common cause, even though you may disagree on something else, has fallen out of favor. You know, it doesn't matter if you're left wing, right wing, Democrat, Republican. It seems like we've gotten to a check all the boxes or you're not in the club. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's a fair assessment? Sure. I think it's a very fair assessment because many legislatures now at the state level. So I think that we we fail to see the impact of what's happening at the state and the impact that it has on our federal level dysfunctionality. Mm. So then, so I mean, the, the, the question. Let me give you an ex- let me Sorry, give you an ahead. example. Why, when I am a state legislator in Michigan, I can only be in the state house for six years, three terms, and I can only be in the state senate for two terms, eight years. Some people may not even be able to move because the pool gets smaller. Right, we have 110 state representatives, 38 state senators. 
we don't have the time to build relationships and to take the time to understand somebody who lives in another part of the state. What are the issues that may be pressing on them? The second thing that we've done is we've allowed corporate money and dark money into our politics. So between the gerrymandering, the term limits, and the Citizens United decision that many states, including Michigan, have codified into state law, these have prevented people who are elected who need to build relationships so that they can find common ground from doing so. So we need to figure out how do we get rid of gerrymandering? Michigan is very fortunate that in 2018, we voted to have an independent citizens redistricting commission. So this year, for the first time, we will have fairly drawn districts. But for the amount of damage that's been done, it won't be easy to undo, especially because we still have term limits and we still have Citizens United. And so I think to undo the harm and the polarization will take a long time. It took us maybe 40 years to get here. Hopefully there's enough of us who understand and who can educate others and get involved and get engaged that we can start turning it. But yeah, that's, that's really harmful that we cannot. That, that, that speaks to the polarization in politics, but I think part of that and part of the motivation for my question is the polarization, even in advocacy work or in ideology. And I was hoping to get pick your brain on how do you think Hindus and Hinduism can offer some sort of solution to that? I think that's one of the, the things that on the one hand, I'm called to serve and to help others. On the other hand, I'm driven away because of the polarization. But then I remind myself that I don't believe in absolutes as a Hindu. There's no commandments. There's no absolute that excludes me from being, right? It's always contextual. Even the decision, for example, about abortion, it's always contextual. So that context and that not having an absolute and being able to consider things from multiple perspectives. And I think that not being only monotheistic because Hinduism is both monotheistic and polytheistic and atheistic and we can keep going. Right. And so not having that one, only one way of seeing things is really helpful. So it brings me to that position where faith seeking understanding is the title of a book I once read and really think that that's really what this is all about is seeking understanding. And so as a Hindu, for me, it's always about trying to understand the other person's perspective. In the past several years, you know, we've seen attacks aimed at Hindus in public life. Some of those people have been running for office. Some of those people have been in office. Some of those people have been appointed to various positions. And we've seen it across the country. It's not limited to one place. I know you, you yourself have faced some of these attacks based upon your identity and presumed political opinions and alliances. Can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced? So I entered the interfaith space because of exclusion. 
In 2005, there was an event that had been happening in the city of Troy called the National Day of Prayer. It was an event to celebrate the country and pray for it on the steps of City Hall at noon. What I didn't know is that that event was meant for those who only who believed in the Nicene Creed, who believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light, and no one else. The city was sponsoring it for 10 years. And when I offered to participate and offered to help organize and expand it, because I do not feel that the city should sponsor an event that was exclusionary, because we are a very diverse country, but especially the city of Troy is home to both uh, Hindu temple as well as a synagogue and has a number of people of different faiths um, that call it home. Baha'i, Buddhist, Muslim, Sikh, Jain, Christian, Hindu, you know, you name it. And atheists, people of no faith as well, um, and agnostics. So, so we really wanted to make this an, inclu an inclusive event. And so out of that came the formation of something called the Troy Area Interfaith Group. And as I participated in that organization and became more broadly known in the interfaith arena here in Michigan, I always felt pushback. I always felt like difficulty because I was a square peg in a round hole trying to explain what my religion was when we were using the parameters of a prophetic tradition like Christianity or Islam, where they had prophets and a single book, the Bible, the Quran, and, and always feeling that I didn't have a voice because when I tried to explain what Hinduism was, somebody else had an answer for me what it was. It's very frustrating. And there were times when I wanted to step back, but I was involved with something called the Hindu Mandir Executive Conference. And I discovered that there were a lot of people like me who had stepped away from interfaith in their own particular region because they also felt silenced. And so we wrote a chapter, um, myself and a professor of communications named Dr. Ramesh Rao in a book called Interfaith Perspectives on Communications. And we talked about this theory in communications called the spiral of silence, where people go and they participate. And so I really stopped really um, participating actively in interfaith but joined the Hindu American Foundation to advocate for Hindus because I saw that there was a need in 2010 when I was invited to join the leadership, national leadership of HAF. That first we needed to fix our own perspective or our own voice, like lift our own voice, that we didn't have people within the Hindu community who really could address and understand how to address the gaps in this interfaith space. And so I joined HAF in 2010. So 2005, 2010, became part of HAF actively, um, became part of the board in 2013. As time kept going, I saw so much pushback, especially as I was on the board of HAF and trying to advocate for those who are vulnerable, who are Hindu whether it was Bangladeshi Hindus and the killing of 3.1 million Bangladeshi Hindus in 1971 at the time of partition, um, not partition, but at the time of the East Pakistan, West Pakistan civil war, or when I talk about, you know, and I have personal friends who were impacted 
by what happened in Kashmir. Close family friends, the Kars. Um, Barnita Kar was one of the people who documented the stories of the Kashmiri exodus, the Bundit's exodus from Kashmir, because she and her family lost so much. And so um, I tried to speak out um, alongside many of the leaders at HAF on these issues. And I was blacklisted. I was called a Hindu nationalist. I was given labels that I didn't even know what they were. I didn't know what a Hindu nationalist was when I was asked, when I was called it, to go home to my husband who was raised in India. So I spent most of my formative years in the United States. I spent two years of high school and my college degree was in India, but that's so competitive that you really don't have time for anything else. And all I knew is I didn't understand Indian politics. And I came back here and I was like back home, even though I came with a foreign student visa. So it really was hard for me to understand why these people were calling me anything to do with Hindu nationalism, because one, I didn't understand it. And two, I had never had any interest in being involved in Indian politics. I had left India at my first opportunity when I got that foreign student visa. And yeah, I advocated for those who are vulnerable. That's always been my way. And so I started getting that pushback. And so I knew when I got into the political arena, when I became a candidate, it was one of the considerations. Was I going to be resilient? Was I going to have the strength if people called me that in public? But it wasn't publicly done. It was a whisper smear campaign. And so that's what started in 2018. Other things happened, but I've held my own. I think that people on the ground know who I am. Um, outside forces have done things. Um, a man by the name of Peter Friedrich published an advertisement with lots of propaganda about where my money is coming from and what I've done. You know, we were able to refute it because Michigan campaign finance laws, I abide by them. You can see who gave me money. The people on the ground know that I have treated everyone equally. Um, I've had interns of all different backgrounds. I had one year, I had a young woman whose father passed away and had to complete a semester volunteering in my office. And not only did I help her after she graduated, I, you know, by helping her, I stayed in touch with her. Um, and you know, she's parents are immigrants from Pakistan. She's Muslim. Like it never meant she's just another young person who I wanted to help who was vulnerable. So, so the proof is in my actions, not in what other people put the propaganda out there. And so I won my election in 2018 as the first Democrat to represent this district in spite of all the propaganda thrown at me in the whisper smear campaigns, I won re-election in 2020 with 10 over 10%. And now I'm running for state Senate. And I know that the propaganda has gotten much worse. The same individual has done more to harm. Others have also tried to speak about me behind my back and continue. But those who know who I am, which is the people in my district have stood up and have, you know, realized who I am. And, and it's not just for an election that I've been doing this. I've been doing this for 20 plus years. Um, and I think that's 
Dharma is not something you do for a day. It is how you live your life. What do you think are some of the motivations? Why, why, why are you being singled out? Or if you prefer to, to broaden it out, why do you think Hindu Americans in public life are receiving this sort of uh, smears, these sort of smears against them? One, I think there are outside political interests that do not want to see people of Indian origin who are Hindu to succeed. I don't see a lot of us who are proud of our Hindu identity, who are able to step up and stand up. We have to apologize for something all the time. I don't really know that I want to apologize for something that I have no control over. I'll apologize if something I did wrong or something that I didn't do. But there's nothing that I can do about other people's actions. It's like asking someone to apologize because they're Christian for the Crusades or for ISIS because they're Muslim. I, as a Hindu, am not responsible for the action of collectively a billion people. I'm responsible for my actions and what I do with my time. Second thing, I think the, the thing that I find even more lacking than the propaganda because it's like noise and I just go on with my life. Um, yes, my father and my husband and several others are concerned for my well-being, physical well-being, because some of these people have done harm uh, or connect or are connected with people who have done physical harm. But for me, the question is, why is the Hindu community not celebrating the fact that we are electing Hindus? Some people celebrated Tulsi Gabbard, but it wasn't but really, truly for me, coming from Michigan, the first Michigan legislator who was Muslim, Muslim woman that was elected, not only did Rashida Tlaib make statewide news, she made national news for being a Muslim woman elected to the state legislature. When I was elected in 2018, nobody made a big deal of it. And recently, a Hindu woman who's at the helm of another major organization that protects women's rights said to me, well, she had it harder. Her community has it harder. I'm sorry. I want a district that has never been held by a Democrat before. I want it not only as a Democrat. I want it as an immigrant. I'm not the child of immigrants. I'm an immigrant. So I have less understanding of this whole process because um, I spent a large chunk of my young adulthood in India, high school and college. Um, I'm also a woman that's older, right? And doing this later in life, you don't learn things as quickly as you do when you're 25 or 30. When you're 55, it's not as easy. Um, and I think that it's really sad for me that the Hindu community has not celebrated and I think that's because of our lack of awareness about politics in general, about advocacy, about celebrating ourselves. Because I think we've been so pushed down. So many people don't even want to identify as Hindu. They have a murti in their home. They may go to a puja. They may um, do many things that are associated, but they're afraid to call themselves Hindu. And I think that self-loathing, that self-shame, those have to be addressed before we can celebrate that we have a Hindu elected to office that's broken so many glass ceilings. So I think it's that part of our, and it's interesting because 
I was in India to visit my parents. I couldn't go to visit them. They got COVID in 2021. I wasn't able to go. I had to go when we had a legislative break. And we talk about things you give up when you run for office. Um, so I went. And for some reason, my parents have a publishing company. My dad has a publishing company. Somebody had come to see him. Things transpired. You know how it, when you go to India, it's just people understand this. It's, it's kind of things happen. And so I got interviewed by Andra Jyoti on one of their TV shows. I was there and it's like Manapadma, that's what they called me, right? Like our Padma. But it was so interesting to see how excited the whole crew, young woman who was the interviewer, the TV host, TV show host, the producer of the show, young woman, and then the three or four camera team that she had, all six of them, they were just so excited about me because here I am, I look like them, but I went to America and I'm a MLA or a state legislator. And like, just to see how much pride they had in me just gave me so much reassurance that it's okay. We will figure it out. We will have pride in ourselves, in our brown skin and our, you know, Hindu, heathen, whatever the world may think of us, we have positive self-worth. And that really, really um, was a very moving experience. So for all the propaganda and, and concern that I have, there are so many stories like this. Fourth graders come to Michigan, to the state capitol from my district. And there's a little girl that came in and she was all over the place because I usually go to the Capitol to take them onto the House floor to the chamber because otherwise they can't go onto the House floor. They can just see the Capitol and then they leave. They can sit in the gallery. If they come onto the floor, they can see the seals of every state Capitol of every state are on the ceiling. And so I wanted to take them down because you can't see the Michigan seal unless you're on the floor. And so I went to show them my desk. And so this little girl is like all over the place. And she must have looked like I did when I was her age with two thick braids, oiled, with a little bindi on her forehead, the bottu that my mom put on my forehead. Um, and she kept on jumping up and down and she was asking so many questions. The teacher kept on reprimanding her. Nivi, don't touch this. Nivi, don't do that. Nivi, don't ask so many questions. At the end, we always take a group picture, the teachers and the, you know, the kids and I do a group picture and then they're about to leave and Nivi, picks up her bag because they're not allowed to bring the bags onto the chamber of the floor, picks up her bag, pulls out a little book. And she says, Representative Koopa, will you give me your autograph? <sighs> and that was the realization that even though this is hard, even though there are moments that I feel like I can't do so much to flip a seat to hold a competitive seat is so hard to be the trailblazer is so hard. But that little girl reminded me that I gave her something that I never had. When you can't see it, you can't be it. Just as Kamala Harris was an inspiration for all the black and brown women in my own small way, hopefully, I'm changing what all those children that come to the Capitol see when they see me as a state legislator. 
Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.